Uh, if you will, please turn uh, to the sermon text today, Matthew chapter 1, and uh, first 25 verses of Matthew uh, chapter 1. Let us rise as we read God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. And Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. And Ammon begot Josiah. Josh, jo, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Bath Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abihud. Abihud begot Eliakim. And Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. And Achim begot Elihud. Elihud begot Eliezer. Eliezer begot Matan, Matan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, who, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ, are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done 
that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Thus far ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Again, O oh Lord, we ask for your help to appreciate and to understand your word. And, Lord, to understand it in a way that goes beyond simply the idea that this is a genealogy, to understand what it is that your spirit wishes us to understand about this genealogy. Why is it here? What purpose does it serve? How does it benefit us? as we seek to know you and serve you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I guess now you know that I can read a number of funny-sounding names. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that as people look at the genealogies in the Bible that they often skip over them. They find them to be uh, somewhat irrelevant, uh, somewhat boring, uh, somewhat uh, unrelated to who we are. But I, I must say to you, and I must emphasize to you, that the genealogies, not just this one, but all of the genealogies of the Bible, are scripture. God breathed these words for the benefit of his people. And as 2 Timothy reminds us, all scripture... All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That really says it about genealogies. That genealogies have some impact on your progress as a Christian. They benefit your sanctification. How do they do that? What is, what is, what's the, how does that happen? That, that just listing people's names uh, speak to our spiritual needs. I think we live in a culture where many people are interested in their genealogy. You have these services that track uh, people's uh, relatives from 
decades and centuries before. And many people go on uh, journeys to find out about their ancestors. Perhaps some of you do those kinds of genealogy, genealogical searches. Last year, my wife, Paula, was contacted by a person previously unknown but to her. He was researching his ancestry and discovered her, her name in his line. My wife's new cousin told her he thinks both of them have a Native American ancestor. Now, this cousin regularly goes to powwows, dances Native American dances in full regalia. My wife Paula, not so much. <laughs> but it is interesting what you're going to find in human genealogies. Perhaps you have embarked on your own quest and you have discovered some surprises. That in your genealogy, in your family lineage, there was a great inventor. <clears throat> or you may have found that there is also a chronic thief who often found, found his way in jail, into jail. But I think the point that I'm trying to make is, might it be beneficial for us to look at Christ's genealogy and see who the, some of these people were? Might that have some surprises? Might it be informative? Might it be beneficial? These are some of the questions that I'm raising as we're looking at Christ's genealogy together. And I don't really have the time to explore all of these individuals. In fact, some of them are rarely mentioned in the Bible and have no indication of much of who they were besides they were a relative of someone else. However, there are others that we know a lot about, others in this genealogy. Notice how it starts. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, both biblical characters about which there's a significant amount of information in the Bible. <coughs> And as I looked through this genealogy, I, I admit to you I didn't look at all of them, but something keeps coming up over and over again, no matter what individual you read about. And that something is, they're all sinners of one degree or another. In fact, it surprises me that the human ancestry of Jesus Christ has such a large number of misfits. 
miscreants, and even at least one murderer. Wouldn't you think that humanity's best would dominate Christ's genealogy? Why in the world does scripture have this frank, open airing of the dirty laundry of Christ's family? There is a, another aspect of this genealogy that warrants some attention. This genealogy is almost unique in the Bible because of the number of women that are in the genealogy. It's rare to find a woman in the genealogy in the Bible, but here there are five, five women. Is that significant? And if it is significant, why is it significant? I, I know I've thrown a lot of questions out at you this morning, but I'm trying to engage you and think, ha, have you think about these things. And I'm going to try to answer some of the questions that I've raised. I hope generally that when you look at a genealogy in the Bible, and this genealogy in particular, you will realize that these people are not myths. They're real. Real people. Real men. Real women. I hope you will also come to understand that they intersect with the great promise that God gave in Genesis 3.15, that from the seed of the woman would come a son who would crush the head of the serpent. The promise of the Savior. All are beneficiaries of that promise and the great covenant promise that God has made to his people because of that seed is this wonderful relationship that God has established with all of his people. The promise is I will be your God and you will be my people. And Jesus amplified that when it, the scripture says he is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. <clears throat> well, let's look a little bit more at this genealogy and the people who are named. Some are hard, we hardly know, as I mentioned before. Who knows anything about Aminadab in verse 4? Others we know very well. David and Abraham, verse 1. And we generally tend to think of David and Abraham as relatively, quote-unquote, good people. And their life 
by and large, demonstrated godly character. Then we also see Manasseh in this line. <laughs> you have to scratch your head. Why? Is it really the case that someone as wicked as Manasseh was could be brought to repentance? Could be brought to the point where he finds himself included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Can it really be? I can't begin to tell you how offended God was at Manasseh for the things that he did. He went beyond all the other bad kings. I mean, can, can, you, can you imagine? Can you imagine in the outside of the temple at Jerusalem, he had all these statues to foreign gods? He bowed down and he worshiped them and he made, and others saw his example and they followed him. He led Israel astray and Jerusalem astray. Could Manasseh really be given the grace of God? To How did he repent? How did he come to know that the Lord was God? Did that just pop into his head? No, that kind of stuff comes from God. That kind of stuff comes from God who convicts sinners of their sin and brings them to call, it, call out for his mercy. There's another aspect of this genealogy that I hope you appreciate. And that is the point that this genealogy covers a lot of history, a lot of biblical history. And it's a genealogy that's about who Jesus is, fulfilling God's promises. So this genealogy is about God's work over millennium, over millennia, to bring people to himself. It's the story of the progress of God's mercy and his grace. In many ways, it's your story too. It's your story. It's your story of how God has worked throughout history to bring people to know him, to serve him, to love him. The same thing that he does in your life if you know him and if you love him and if you serve him. It's not because we came to know God. It's because God has come to know us. God's mercy and his blessing doesn't depend on you or on us. It depends on him who sovereignly bestows it. And since this 
message, since this uh, genealogy covers all of history, this is a, a um, this is testimony to the fact that the Old Testament is also relevant to your understanding of the Bible. That, you're, that the Old Testament itself and the characters that God, that we see here and the, and, and the fact that God is working in their lives, that that's, the Old Testament is gospel too. It's not a different book. It's the same gospel of God's amazing grace that's at work in people like you and like me. And I say, hallelujah. <laughs> what a history. You, you have to understand, I'm a history nerd, okay? Anything that's history, I'm interested in. It doesn't matter. Biblical history, Presbyterian, we, we have a Presbyterian church five miles away from where I live that was founded in 1769. It still has worship services. Unfortunately, they're dominated by liberals, but that's another story. I'm interested in all kinds of history, and, uh, and if you're not interested in history, well, you probably won't like what I'm talking about today, but I hope you will see that the history is a history of redemptive history. And that's what you should be interested in. God at work, saving sinners who can't save themselves. Let me focus for just the remainder of the time. on a couple of more examples of uh, weakness and sin. We mentioned Abraham and David, who are, you know, two of the best human beings in the Bible. I mean, David repeatedly in the Bible is said to be the man after God's own heart. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 19 tells us that Abraham believed that God could raise his son from the dead if he was to sacrifice Isaac. That's pretty amazing faith, don't you think? When the resurrection of Jesus Christ had not even occurred, these were great men, but the Bible also records their weaknesses. Abraham lied twice to avoid revealing that Sarah was his wife. And David, the man after God's own heart, committed adultery with another man's wife and had that man placed in a position where he would be killed. And yet here they are. 
Here they are. Here they are in this record of God's dealing. Here they are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I've already talked about Manasseh. I don't have to go back and talk about his evil. Just to remind you that he's here. And I suspect that if uh, more of the records of the, all the men, which I think are 42 men in this genealogy, I think if you were actually know some of the history about them, you'd find that they have sinned just like everybody else because all have sinned and falling short of God's glory. I can say that because the Bible says it. What about the women? <laughs> maybe, maybe they're different. <laughs> maybe there's some great goodness in them that transcends the evil of men. And yet we find in the record, don't we, a number of disappointing statements. Tamar. Tamar disguised herself, mentioned in verse 3, disguised herself as a temple harlot to seduce Judah so she could have a son. I suspect that her actions would not get her into the ladies' missionary society. What about Ruth? Excuse me. Before Ruth, what about Rahab? How is Rahab mentioned? A harlot in Jericho who feared the Lord, who repented of her sins and was engrafted into this redeemed family as one of God's children. This pagan Canaanite, a harlot in Jericho, came to know the Lord. And that turned out to be really important. <laughs> Not just for the fact that God was working now to expand his promise to the nations as she is being engrafted into the family of those who believe in the seed of Abraham. Not just for that. She had a son, a guy named Boaz, who's one of the central characters in the book of Ruth. If you haven't read the book of Ruth, Go home and read it tonight. Four chapters. Amazing book on a number of levels. And Boaz, I don't have time to go into this, but Boaz basically becomes something called the kinsman redeemer who raises up seed to Ruth so that the family will not lose their inheritance. Ruth bears and Boaz have a son. His name is Obed. How would you like to have a son named Obed? <laughs> Obed in Hebrew means servant, one who serves. And Obed had a son. His name was David. And David is here in this lineage, along with <clears throat> Rahab, 
Ruth. Then you have the one mentioned whose name is not even given, but her act is mentioned. Verse 6. Begat Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. A woman complicit in David's adultery and in his murder of her husband. No, the and then there's Mary. Nothing is ever bad said about Mary, so I'm not going to be the first to do that. But I would remind you that they came from Nazareth, of which the scripture says nothing good ever can come out of Nazareth. Of course, it was proved to be wrong. But God highly favors Mary. The genealogy of Christ, both men and women, not just a history of God's redeeming work, but it's also a testimony to man's depravity. <laughs> and when I say that, it also points out our need, our need for a Savior, because they're an ungood, no, not one, and yet God saves them. The story ends not with defeat, not with sin, not with death, not with men and women who have broken God's commandments, but maybe repent, some repented and brought into this line. But it ends with the story of the one who comes. It ends with Jesus. It ends with the one who is told, whose father is told to name his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin, which is what the word Jesus means. And then it says this is to fulfill what was written in the prophet, Isaiah 7, verse 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What did God promise? I will be your God. You will be my people. Emmanuel. How much more with us could God be than Jesus? Taking on human form, walking, bearing the humiliation of his suffering. How much more? Can, that, can God be with us? Well, actually, he can be more because Jesus said, I must go because another comforter will come. And it will be better for you if I go because the Holy Spirit will come and he will be with you always because he will be in your heart always. We live in troubling times. Conversations with my teenage, well, she's not a teenager anymore, 
she's almost 30, with my teenage, with my daughter. <laughs> she expresses from time to time what I think part of our culture is expressing. She says, Dad, I feel hopeless a lot. I feel hopeless. I don't think there's any hope. She's having her spiritual <laughs> issues. Any of you who wonder about or feel that it's hopeless, any of you who feel overwhelmed by what's going on, I encourage you to remember you have the best hope there is in the one who is Emmanuel, who, if you're a believer, has saved you from your sin. People today who don't have Jesus, their problem is they are looking they are putting their hope in something which is not eternal. And hope, that kind of hope can never satisfy. Only the hope of being united forever with your creator and your redeemer in Jesus Christ, only that hope can sustain you through all the heartache, the misery, the suffering that you may go through in this life. Because that hope you see is eternal. And this world, in the final analysis, and I can stand here and I can tell you, as someone who has now lived 71 years, this world has no hope that you can turn to. But praise God for Jesus who has washed your sins away, who has reconciled you to God forever and ever. And therefore, there is no condemnation in any who are in Jesus Christ. And the best thing you have going for you his promise and his redemption and his raising, being risen from the dead. Sin has no power over him. And by faith, you are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. Sin has no dominion over you. The blood of Jesus, the object of this genealogy, your hope forever.